Good morning and welcome to our Family Bible Hour. If you have your Bibles handy, would you all please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. John, chapter 19, verses 31 to 37. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank thee so much for this text before us. And we pray that the Spirit of God will, by his grace, grant us the ability to understand what is before us, to take it to heart, and to apply it to our lives, so that the will of God may be done accordingly. For we ask it always in our Savior's name and for his glory. Amen. And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. That Christ was crucified, died, buried, and risen from the dead is an undeniable fact of scripture. Even the unlearned, the lost, can come to that conclusion by simply reading the accounts in the Gospels for themselves. However, what the lost have trouble understanding is why Christ died for them. And so I trust that within the next few minutes, the Lord may by his grace enable me to expound simply and clearly Christ's death on the cross and its significance to mankind. This then brings us to our first point in our message this morning, which I've entitled, The Person of Christ. The Person of Christ. We have recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke 23, verse 24, the most precious words that a sinner will ever hear. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the person who prayed those words was no ordinary man. He was Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And further down in John 1.14 we read, And the word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, the Apostle Paul testifies that this same Jesus is very God himself when he writes that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And then in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we read this most uh, significant fact, this very, very interesting statement. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he is very God himself, who has no beginning and has no ending. The Gospel of Mark clearly demonstrates his divinity in action. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 39, Christ stills the raging seas and fierce winds simply by the power of his word. Peace, be still. And when his disciples witnessed this great miracle, they feared, saying one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? He, as the Son of God, has authority over all nature. Later, in Mark 5, verses 1 to 20, we read the account of Jesus confronting the demoniacs of the Gadarenes, where he releases from bondage a demon-possessed man. Christ simply said, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit, and, say the scriptures, that all the demons came out and later entered a herd of 3,000 swine, driving them over a steep cliff to their deaths. Jesus, as the Son of God, has authority over the entire spirit world, which includes angels and demons and the devil himself. Still in that same chapter, Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34, Jesus heals instantly a certain woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. No doctor could cure her. No medicine could help her. No home remedies did the trick. But when she saw Jesus, 
She merely touched his garment as he passed by and immediately, say the scriptures, she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Jesus, as the Son of God, has the authority over all sicknesses and diseases. Time after time, he healed the sick, restored sight to the blind, made the lame to walk, raised the dead. So as Son of God, he was and is very God himself, who has power over all life and death. But the Jesus Christ of the Bible is also called the Son of Man. He was perfectly God and perfectly man at the same time. The scriptures tell us in Matthew 1, verses 18 to 21, that he was born of a virgin, a prophecy which was fulfilled from Isaiah 7, 14. Before Joseph and Mary came together as husband and wife, God the Holy Spirit conceived of Mary the child Jesus. No other child had ever been born in this fashion before, without an earthly father, nor ever would be. This was the incarnation of God, God manifested in the flesh. Had Christ not been born man, he could not be qualified to redeem mankind. He could not die. Had he not been perfectly without sin and the sin nature, incapable of sinning, then his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary would have been blemished and unacceptable to God the Father. Nevertheless, as a perfect, sinless man, Christ experienced the same attributes as men. He at times was hungry. Luke 4.2 tells us that Jesus, after being in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted of the devil, he hungered. As son of man, he also experienced thirst, as on the cross in his dying moments when he uttered, I thirst. John 19.28 He, like us, experienced sorrow and grief, and he wept. In John 11.35, Jesus wept with sorrow at the death of his friend Lazarus. He knew and felt the pain and the loss that Mary and Martha experienced in their souls as they mourned for their brother Lazarus. Also as son of man, Jesus bled and felt physical pain. When he was scourged by the cruel Roman whip with sharp bones and metal bits tied in the ends, his back was cut to shreds. His back, says Psalm 129.3, was like a plowed field. Blood flowed from him profusely. And when they nailed him to the cross by his hands and his feet, Blood flowed once again. There was excruciating pain and agony and much physical suffering. And that is why Jesus had to be fully man, so that he could die on that cross and take the penalty for your sins and for mine. That was the just demand for sin, death. Romans 6.23 declared, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This now brings us to our second point 
in our message for this morning, which I've entitled The Passion of Christ. The Passion of Christ. Let there be no doubt about the severity of our Lord's pain and suffering. Let not one be deceived into thinking that Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the whole world, did not suffer excruciating pain of the worst kind. Let no one think that because he was the Son of God, his pain and his suffering was any less as some have claimed. The scriptures clearly describe his physical as well as his spiritual suffering. Isaiah 53 verse 3 tells us that he was despised by those whom he came to save, rejected by them, scoffed at, spit upon, and smitten. Isaiah 52.14 tells us that he was so physically marred that he was unrecognizable as a man. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 27 to 61, is especially graphic in depicting our Savior's mocking at the hands of him, of men, and his scourging and his crucifixion. But dearly beloved, that is not all. Had Jesus died on the cross at that moment as a result of the punishment of the Roman soldiers, it would have been all in vain. God, who is righteous and holy, would never have accepted that punishment at the hands of wicked and sinful men as a just payment for sin. God the Father had to himself pour the just punishment for all our sins upon his own Son. Oh, do we grasp this awful truth. God the Father would now punish Jesus Christ in full. And that is why at 12 p.m. on that awful Wednesday afternoon, the day before the three Sabbaths in a row were to begin, why God made darkness appear over all the land until 3 p.m., when Jesus finally died. And during those three hours, God the Father poured out his wrath and punishment upon Christ for the sins of the entire world. Your sins and my sins were placed upon the shoulders of Christ, and they were judged one by one. They were judged fully. They were judged righteously. They were judged once and for all. And permanently. Isaiah 53, 4 to 5 tells us, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And then in Isaiah 53, 10, we read, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. His soul was made an offering for our sins. And as that happened, God the Father in that dark and dreadful moment turned away from his Son. He separated himself from all of those sins because sin, even one, separates us from God. And for the first time since eternity past, 
the Son of God experienced something he had never before experienced, separation from God his Father. And that is why he cried out in Mark 15, 34, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken. Oh, dear friend, if you have never examined the death of Christ before, do so today. Because he died for you and he died for me. Do you think for one moment that God would ever accept you in any other way than through Jesus Christ after what he has gone through? But the good news of Christ's suffering and his death is that he rose again from the dead after the third day, validating his sacrifice on the cross. When Jesus cried in John 19.30, it is finished to his father. What was he saying to him? Father, I have finished everything that you have ever asked of me. I have fulfilled all the scriptures concerning me. I have shed my blood so that all of their sins might be washed away. The penalty that you have demanded for their sins, I have paid in full. It is finished. Hallelujah. This now brings us to the third point in our message for this morning. The purpose of Christ's death. The purpose of Christ's death. So many today misunderstand the purpose in Christ's coming. Even so-called theologians and biblical scholars are often misinformed because of unbelief as to who Christ is and why he came. The whole of the Old Testament talks about his coming. The whole of the New Testament explains why he came and that he is going to return again. And the the reason why he came the first time, according to Scripture, was twofold. Number one, he came to destroy the works of the devil, we are told in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then in Luke Chapter 19, verse 10, and Matthew 18, 11, we are told that Christ came also to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save mankind from their sins. That is why God sent his Son to this sin-ruined world. It wasn't to show mankind how to have a good time or how to get along with one another. Sinful man does not have the power to do what is good and right on any consistent basis without the enabling of the Spirit of God and His grace. And that is why man must be redeemed. That is why he must be born again of the Spirit of God and indwelt by the living God to give him that power to live by faith, a life of faith. But before all this can happen, the just penalty for sin had to first be met. And in order for Christ to have destroyed the works of the devil completely and to save his people from their sins, he had to die the death on the cross. 
For without the shedding of blood, there could never be any remission of sins, tells us Hebrews 9.22. And it had to be the cross. For the scriptures clearly tell us that Christ, who was perfect, who was sinless, who was incapable of sinning, had to be made a curse for us. And the only way he could be made a curse for us was by God's own declaration that cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21:23 and Galatians 3:13. Christ came to redeem mankind from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. And so the question that must ultimately be asked is what motive did God have in sending his son to die for the sins of the whole world? For God so loved the world, tells us John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was because of love for his creature that the Almighty did this for us. Salvation is all a work of God. It is a gift. The book of Ephesians chapter 2, 4-9 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But that is not all. God has made wonderful provisions for us in salvation, which brings us to the fourth and final point in our message for this morning, the provision of Christ. The provision of Christ. And the first thing which Christ provides for us when we receive him by faith as our Savior is peace. Peace with God. Romans 5, 1 tells us, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is permanently removed from the now forgiven sinner. The sin question has been dealt with and sin has been put away forever. Now, God's riches of grace in Christ Jesus are able to become an experiential reality in the life of the believer. But we must all remember that all of the Godhead is involved in our salvation. Not just the Son, not just the Father, not just the Holy Spirit, but all three. The scriptures tell us that God the Father sent the Son, 1 John 4.10 and John 20.21, 20, and that the Son sent the Holy Spirit John 15, 26. Each person of the Godhead has his role in our salvation. In short, the Holy Spirit convicts men of sin. He speaks to them of their desperate need of the Savior. 
He always points men to Christ and the cross. He performs the work of redemption. He seals the believer until the day of redemption. He is the comforter and he empowers the believer for service for God. But it is the Father who draws all sinners to the Son, John 6, 44. When the sinner comes to Christ and receives God, the Son as his Savior, it is the Father who then, according to Colossians 1, 12 to 16, delivers the sinner from the power of darkness and makes the sinner eligible to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, he prepares the new believer for heaven. And it is the Father who translates the new believer into the kingdom of his dear Son. And none of this work can ever be annulled or reversed. It is permanent. And Christ, the Son of God, who is now seated on the right hand of God the Father in heaven, is also interceding on behalf of the believer daily. And that is such wonderful news. He did not just save us only to abandon us after we have believed, but he intercedes for us daily, because we as Christians still have the sin nature, and as such we still sin from time to time, and sin for the Christian destroys fellowship with God if it is not confessed. And so when the believer confesses his daily sins before God through Christ his Savior, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our fellowship is immediately restored. This is vital, for the devil has access into heaven and daily accuses the Christian of all sorts of wrongdoing before God. But it is Christ who cleanses us daily and keeps us. Romans eight thirty three to 34 reminds us, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Such is the provision of Christ, all because he went to the cross of Calvary. And so the result for the believer is total forgiveness of all our sins, peace with God, a newness of life, and security for all eternity. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Now I see our time is almost out, so I must ask you this solemn question before we conclude. When you look upon him whom they pierced, will you be looking at him as your Savior or as your judge? For the Scriptures clearly tell us that every living soul must one day stand before Jesus Christ to give an account, Romans 14, 12. And I ask you, where will you stand? Will it be at the judgment seat of Christ after the rapture with all the saved where rewards for service will be given? Or will it be at the white throne judgment seat where only the lost will stand only to be sentenced to a lost eternity. 
Oh, I trust it will be the former where the Savior will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this book called the Holy Bible. We thank thee that thou hast inspired it divinely and has divinely preserved it so that we may trust every word of it. We thank thee for this story of Christ on the cross of Calvary, dying for our sins and setting us free. Pray thee to part us with thy blessings, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day to study thy word and to remember him through the breaking of bread. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.